Late in the 19th century, there was a renowned artist named Paul Gustave Dorr. Um, and I think we have a picture of his work up here. He was a famous artist, uh, painted a lot of things out of the Bible and out of life. He also painted and drew a lot of sketches. And he was traveling throughout Europe at one point, and he had lost his passport. He'd misplaced it. And he was walking, he was on foot, and he came up to a, uh, like a border crossing. He approached the guard and he said, you know, I'm Paul Gustav Dorr, like everybody knows me. I'm, I, this, I'm the artist, I'm the man. And the guard looked at him like, uh, I don't know who you are. And people all the time give me fake passports and tell me that they are someone else, but I don't know you. So the guard thought about it for a moment. The guy was pestering him and he said, you know, how about a test? So he pulled out a piece of paper and a pencil out of his pack and gave it to the artist, to Dwar, and offered him the opportunity to prove that he was, in fact, the artist. So he began to sketch some peasants standing nearby, and very quickly it became evident that he was, in fact, the artist. You see, his works confirmed his words. That's how we know artists. That's how we know um, creative people is by their work. We identify them in that way. Most of us couldn't pick out Beethoven or Da Vinci out of a police lineup, right? Most of us don't know what they actually look like, but we know what Ferdelise sounds like, and we know what, um, uh, you know, the Mona Lisa looks like. We, we could be able to identify them by their works. In the same way, God is known not just for his words in the Bible, but he's also known for his works, and sometimes known by his works. It's really hard to stand... Uh, overlooking the Grand Canyon or stand on the edge of Niagara Falls or perhaps be in the presence of Mother Teresa and watch her love orphans or love the lepers or love people who are terminally ill. It's hard to see those things and not question whether or not there is a good God. And then if you come around to believing that, to praise him for being a good God. But what happens when God's creation doesn't point out a loving artist? What happens when God's creation becomes hateful or racist, like some of our political candidates, and say things but claim to follow Jesus? What happens when uh, God's creation bombs innocent children? Does that put a stain on the great artist? Does that change his character? Um, does it cast a shadow on God? Can we really identify God just by his works? Well, today... I want to talk, um, we're going to start a series, and this is going to be a fun seven-week series, but today I want to start off by asking you guys to, for a little participation, okay? Don't worry, you don't have to speak out, you just do it all in your head. But I want you guys to answer, fill in the blank here, God is. The first three things that come to your mind, you can write them down or you can just capture them in your mind. The first three things to you, you personally, when you think God is, what are the first three things that come to mind? For me, I did this exercise, and I, I thought honestly, what are the first three things? The first three things that came to my mind were he is more than enough, so he's abundant. There's a lot. Um, he is justice, and the third was that um, he's beyond my full comprehension. I'll, I'll never really understand all of God. Those are the three things that came to my mind. But I would guess that whatever you put down, it could be negative, could be positive, but it probably has something to do with your interaction with God's creation, with God's work with the people who claim to be his or with his book. In some way, you've interacted with God and formed an opinion about him. Maybe you grew up in a loving home as a child and your parents were really kind and generous and loving and took good care of you. 
and they also went to church. And so you associate those things together. So you might say God is love. Or maybe um, you encountered a judgmental Facebook Christian who told you that you're going to hell for your political views or whatever, and you might answer that question by God is only wanting uh, to condemn me. Now, I've been a Christian for 23 years. I grew up in church. I played the drums in the church band. Um, I loved church. My family actually used to sit around. I'm one of five kids, and my mom plays the guitar. So we used to sit around in our family living room, and just like the Von Trapps, we used to sit around and sing uh, worship songs in the morning before school. So I've had like the ultimate experience. I went to a Bible college. I have a bachelor's degree in the Bible. I've had 10 years in full-time ministry and about 10 more in part-time ministry. I am a professional Christian, right? I should have God figured out. When you ask God is, I should be like, boom, 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 here's who God is. But what I've found out If you remember, my earlier response to God is, the last one was that God is beyond my full comprehension. Even after 23 years of living the most Christian of lives, having all the opportunities to hear about God and read about God, I still believe today that this side of heaven, we won't really begin to even scratch the surface of who God is fully and completely. Now, we can come to know little things about him and we can come to grasp him enough that we want to be closer Um, But I believe that's part of the journey is that God's constantly revealing himself to us. The fact that we can't know all about God this side of heaven makes me a little leery of three-point sermons. It makes me a little leery of when someone stands up and says, um, you know, God is these three things only. God, uh, or when people say, here's the three ways that you get over death. Well, there's more than three ways to get over death. There's more to it, right? Here's the three things that all good husbands do. Well, if you're a husband, you know that there's more than three things, right? We, uh, it, it can't be boiled down. God can't be defined in such easy terms, and neither can his way of living. There's more to it. He can't be reduced to mere words, and especially not just three simple words. How arrogant are we to believe that we think we can figure out God? I don't even think that this... Uh, not only do I believe that this side of heaven, we won't fully understand him, there's even a part of me that believes that when we get to heaven, we won't fully grasp who God is because he's so big and so massive. Um, But that doesn't mean that God is not worth pursuing. That's not what that means. In fact, it simply means to me that our posture has to change when we're on this journey of pursuing God. I think it requires humility. I think it requires that we recognize that at the end of the journey of getting to know God, that in fact, at the end, the goal is not to fully have him figured out. That's not where it will end. But in humility for us to recognize that we will in fact simply be closer to him and we will gain knowledge and we will learn more about him as we become more intimate in our relationship with him. But ultimately it's about that relationship. That's what we all crave. That's what every human being wants and needs is relationship. So I look at following God as like a journey. It's like a path that we're on. It's like a story that's still being written and we get to come in and be a part of it. So we've seen how God's works can influence how we think about him. But this series is actually going to be about God's words. Uh, It's a series that is called I Am because From the beginning of the Bible, in the second book of the Bible, in Exodus, in the third chapter, God meets with a guy named Moses on a mountain. And they have this experience, and God says for Moses to go and tell his people 
that the God that he met with is to be titled, I am. That's what they're to call him, I am. That's so like open-ended. I am, like it could be anything. You could fill that in with a million different things, literally. And I started writing things down, all the things that I think God is and all the things that God could be. So I am is this beautiful, open-ended, unfinished descriptor of who God is, and it helps us recognize that he is infinite. You could say, I am infinite when talking about God. He was before there ever was, and he will be long after. God is all-encompassing. He is the I am. And you fast forward to the New Testament, and God has sent his son, Jesus, to earth, and people are unsure when he says that he is God. People are mad about it. People are unsure. People are questioning. Some are excited. Everyone has different reactions to Jesus claiming to be God. And finally, in John chapter 8, this is the book that we'll be in throughout this series is the book of John. In John chapter 8, verse 55, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. So Jesus claims that he is God, that he is um, God, in fact. So he claims, I am. It's this bold declarative statement that Jesus says. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to study the person of Jesus because Jesus says in John 14, later on in the book, if you want to know the Father, if you want to know God, you have to get to know Jesus. He is the prism through which we see God. He is the glasses that we put on to better understand who God really is. And throughout the book of John, Jesus uses seven different I am statements to say, this is who I am, therefore this is who God is. So seven weeks we're going to go through and we're going to talk about who God is. And the first I am statement, I'm excited that I get to share with you today because it's my favorite. If you've ever talked to me about like my favorite characteristics of God, my favorite descriptor of God is when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And today I get to start off by uh, talking to you all about that. I am the light of the world. It's such rich imagery, right? I mean, you can take the word light and light means so many things in so many different ways. If you, if you were just to ponder on all the different things that light offers or that light does or that light attracts, light does so many different things. And yet, even as rich as this imagery of Jesus as the light is, it's also just simple enough that my four and six-year-old boys are right on par. They, they are right with me when I talk about Jesus as the light. The other day I was talking with them and I asked them, you know, what does it mean Jesus is the light? And they had all these great answers. And I was, I was like, whoa, this is, it is simple, but it is also complex. It is also deep. And I love that about Jesus. So um, it's John chapter 9 is the passage we're going to be studying. So if you want to pick up a Bible and uh, turn to page 747, just like the airplane, 747. If you turn to that page, you'll see a giant number nine uh, about halfway down the right-hand page. And we're going to start right with those words right next to it here in a minute. In the fifth verse of this this chapter, uh, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It is a rich, uh, a word full of rich imagery, and it gives us all sorts of characteristics about God through the person of Jesus. But today, I want to focus just on three. Anybody get that joke? Three-point sermon. It's funny. Come on. I just talked about how I don't like three-point sermons. But um, today, these aren't the only three, okay? They're not the only three characteristics of God as light, but these are three important ones that I want to point out. So 
Um, the first is this, that Jesus as the light is the truth. Jesus is the truth. We tend to think of truth as relative, right? That's, that's a part of our upbringing, a part of our society. Truth is relative. What's true for you might not be true for me. What's true today isn't true tomorrow or wasn't true yesterday. Truth is relative. It's different for different people in different times and different places. Truth is relative. And we tend to think of truth being easily uh, explained through the laws of naturalism, right? This is like the laws of the world or the laws of science can explain everything on earth. What naturalism does is it, it totally excludes the supernatural world, right? It totally excludes spirits and, and all the stuff that we think of as like really out there. That's all excluded with the idea of naturalism. And we tend to think of truth as a very rational thing that we can completely understand and we can write down on paper and the laws of science will explain to us. But it leaves no room for the supernatural. We believe that truth, um, if it can't be explained, then it is unknowable. What the Bible tells us, though, is that absolute unchanging truth does exist. It tells us that there is truth and that it does involve the supernatural world. That's what the scriptures tell us. And the scriptures tell us, interestingly enough, though, that the truth is not a what. It's not something that you pursue and find in a book. Truth is a who. Truth is Jesus. Jesus is the truth. And as light, he shines light on um, our lives and offers us truth. The more that we get to know Jesus, the deeper the truths are that we will find out about ourselves. The, truth, the deeper the truths that we will find out about our identity, our purpose here on earth, why we were put here. Jesus as a whole embodies truth. Jesus is truth. So that's the first. Uh, light shines. Uh, Jesus shines as light, offering new truth in our life. The second illustration of Jesus as light is that he exposes the darkness in our life. Now, this one is a little uncomfortable, right? Because you think about darkness, this is sin. This is the, the areas of our life where we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Over the last year, um, I'm preparing, my wife and I are preparing to plant uh, a church in Baltimore City next year. And so that's why we get to hang out with you guys to learn more about what a baby church looks like. So thank you for teaching us so much. Um, but in this time... One of the things that my wife and I have done in the last couple months sounds really weird, so stick with me here. Um, we actually, I actually started going to counseling, although everything in my life is just great. It really is. Um, but I started going to counseling because I, I realized that there is some crap in my past um, from my childhood that, uh, that could potentially be used by Satan to attack us. And I know that in launching a church, I've heard from lots of church planters, that in launching a church... Satan will be on the full attack. And so I went to counseling to ask the counselor what was wrong with me, even though I didn't feel like anything was wrong with me. Like, that sounds really weird, I know. But essentially what I realized I was doing is I was asking Jesus to come into the bones of my body, to get into the marrow, and to really shine light on any darkness that was hidden inside of me. Any, any sin, any trouble that was inside of me that Satan could potentially use in the future. And it did reveal lots of things. Um, Baltimore City, if, if you guys know anything about it or if you've seen the news recently, um, is a city that is uh, very conflicted. Uh, it's a city that is uh, mad and upset. And it is mostly um, comes down to, in our worldview, uh, of racial tension. And that racial tension has created a lot of conflict in my city. Um, 
And what I've become aware of through this counseling time, what Jesus has shown light on in me is that I do, in fact, have white privilege. Like this thing that seemed so foreign to me and I was so offended by and so frustrated with, and I came to recognize that that, that was in me. And it wasn't easy. It doesn't feel comfortable to have Jesus like expose that. It's not comfortable for me to stand up here and say it. In fact, last night, my wife and I had a long conversation um, about uh, whether or not I should even share that, that there was white privilege inside of me. But I came to recognize that by sharing it, by shining light on it, that Jesus, in fact, exposes the lies of Satan. He brings to light what Satan is trying to hide in darkness, because that's what our sin is. It's hidden. It's dark. And Satan wants it to stay that way. But Jesus wants to come in, and he wants to shine his bright light, his bright truth on our darkest places, and he wants to expose them. The cool thing is, though, that Jesus isn't just exposing those sins so that we can be embarrassed. That's not where it ends with Jesus. Jesus takes that darkness, and as he pushes out the darkness in our life, he fills it back up, that empty space, with light. He fills it with truth. And man, I'm telling you what, it, it's been a rough journey, but I'm, I'm feeling so much more whole now. You know, like Jesus is really beginning to do this work inside of me because I allowed him in to shine in the dark places in my life. So Jesus um, shines the light on the darkness and he fills that empty space up when the darkness is pushed out with the light of truth. And lastly, Jesus, um, as light, brings new understanding. He helps us see the world in a new light and he helps us um, on this journey of life. He becomes our guide in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness anymore because you will have the light that leads to life. I love that. Jesus is saying, I am light and I'm going to lead you to new life. I'm going to fill you up with truth and make your life um, this new, beautiful, whole thing. And I love how God has been doing that in my life. I want to take a moment and, uh, well, the rest of our time together, and I want to look at that story, um, the context around Jesus saying in John chapter 9, verse 5, I am the light of the world. So we're going to start um, on uh, page 747, right at that giant number 9. I'm going to begin reading there. As he went along, this is Jesus, uh, Jesus saw a man blind, uh, blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. Jesus responded, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me, but night is coming, that's death, um, but night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, he made a mud pie with his saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, Jesus told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which in Greek means sent. So the man went and he washed and he was able to see and he returned home. There's some context that goes into this story that's important to know. In this culture uh, that Jesus was performing this act in, this isn't a parable, this is actually a, a, a story of Jesus's actions. And so um, Jesus heals this man who is born blind. It, but it's important for us to know that in this culture, 
blindness was seen as, like many other ailments or illnesses, it was seen as a punishment for sin. So they saw it as, it, you have clearly done something wrong because you are blind or because you uh, have this disease or whatever. But since this guy was born blind, I mean, a baby can't sin, so they figured it must be his parents. So his disciples, the, the men who've been walking with Jesus, spending time with him, listening to him, these men and women asked Jesus, uh, which one is it? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And I love what Jesus does. Um, this man who is literally living in literal darkness, right? We talked about earlier how Jesus shines the light on our darkness, which is sin. But this man is literally blind. He's painting, Jesus is laying it out for us in this beautiful picture uh, of restoration. This man is literally blind and Jesus comes and instead of talking about the sin, instead of pointing to what the problem was or digging back in this man's past or his parents' past even, Jesus tells them it's not about that. Jesus says, I'm not even, I'm not even interested in talking about the sin here. This man and what's happened here was, has happened so that God could step in and he could restore wholeness of life. That's why this happened. Jesus dismisses the question of whose fault is it, and instead, he illuminates the presence of God's kingdom in the here and now. He points to them, he points around, and he shows them, look, God's kingdom is here. It's, it's real. It's tangible. You can put your hands on it. This man has been healed. Um, it's significant that, to know that by healing this man, um, Jesus was forgiving his sins. Because if the sin or if the illness was a um, consequence of the sin and Jesus erases the illness, Jesus is saying, you no longer have to pay for the sin anymore. It's this beautiful picture. And, you know, Jesus later goes to the cross and says the same thing, right? That he's wiping away all, making us whole again, getting rid of all the sin, getting rid of all of the darkness in our lives. So Jesus, by healing this man, is giving him forgiveness. Healing completeness and forgiveness are here and they're free. This is good news. It was not just good news to them then, it's good news to us now. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I want you to remember that Jesus is good news. Um, so healing and forgiveness are here and it is good news. I love this picture that Jesus painted, paints with this man who is literally born blind and and is now Jesus becomes the light in his life. I, just, I love that. And the way that he does it is really significant too. Um, Jesus bends over and he spits in the ground, which is a little gross, right? Like I think it's, well, the guy was blind, so he didn't see it happen, but maybe he could probably hear Jesus like hawking a loogie and then spitting in the, you know, and mixing dirt together. Um, everyone else probably would have been standing around like, what is this dude doing? What is going on? But Jesus, by using these two elements, by using the dust of the earth and by using the spit from him, he's actually hearkening back to Genesis chapter one in the Bible. Because in Genesis chapter one, Jesus was there. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were all there creating everything. And if you recall, the last creation was mankind. And God made mankind out of the dust of the earth and then he breathed his breath into it. It's so significant. Jesus is trying to show us here what God was showing us from creation in Genesis 1, that earth will bring God's glory. It will 
help people recognize God will use the earth and the beauty of our surroundings and the uh, restorative works in mankind. God will use those things to bring him glory, which means that we play a role, that we get to be a part as creation, as earth. We get to be a part of that. But then God injects himself into it, right? In Genesis 1, it's his breath. In John chapter 9, Jesus uses his spit to bring together earth and God, just like in the person of Jesus, earth and God, man and God. Um, Jesus is doing this, and he's showing with his spit that only through God does redemption come. Only through God does restoration really come. And so there's this beautiful picture of earth and God coming together um, to play, uh, to each play a role. The story goes on, and after the man is healed, uh, Jesus sends him to go, you know, wash his eyes, and then, he's, then he is healed. And then the Pharisees, the um, religious leaders of the time, they go and they basically hunt him down, and they're like, tell us, how did you get healed? What happened? And the guy responds with the facts, you know, he tells him, this man named Jesus healed me. And they want more, you know, who is he? Is he a sinner? Is he, uh, you know, does he, who does he claim to be? Tell us about him. And he's, this is all I know. All I know is that Jesus healed me. Um, this is the truth that I know. And in John chapter 9, uh, verse 24 and 25, we pick up the story there. In verse 24, it says, a second time, the religious leaders summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they tell him. You tell the truth. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. So the man replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. So the man responds with the only truth that he knows, the only truth that he has, that Jesus healed him. This is the same, um, the same action that we are then encouraged to go and do, to shine light on the work of Jesus around us, to point back to the fact that, yes, I am whole. I am, have been restored in different ways. I, I do have new life, but the reason that I have new life is not because of some 12-step program or because of some th uh, thing that I did, but because of the grace of God, because Jesus has stepped in and restored me. So it's our job to point back just like the man did. Sometimes that will land you in a sticky situation. Uh, if you fast forward in the story to verse 34, um, on the very next page, it says, to this, uh, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. So now they're just mad at the guy because he won't say that Jesus is a sinner. He won't say that he's a bad guy. He just, just is giving the truth. And so they say, oh, you must be a sinner. From, from birth, you were full of sin. So they're just ticked off. They're just yelling. How dare you lecture us? So they threw him out of the synagogue. They threw him out. He became an outcast and he was kicked out. Sometimes when when you shine light on things, when you bring the truth of Jesus to things and you show God's presence, people will be offended. That happens sometimes. People won't understand or people will be uncomfortable. As we talked about earlier, Jesus as the light wants to shine light on your darkness. That's not a comfortable thing. And so it makes people uncomfortable. And sometimes it creates this comparison game that people have. Like the Pharisees here are saying, I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm a better worker. What, how dare you lecture me? How dare you tell me? How dare you try and teach me anything? But the truth is that the source of our light, where this comes from, is the authority of Jesus. That's where we get our authority to shine light. That's how we are able to shine light back on the truth. 
And ultimately, though, it's the Holy Spirit. He's the one who convicts. He's the one who uh, actually shines that light in the darkness, and he's the one who brings new understanding. He is the truth. So it's important that we point back to the fact that Jesus not only used earth, but he also used himself. This story, perhaps the coolest thing about this story is that um, as I was doing research on this and looking it up, um, several of the commentators pointed out that Jesus was the only, uh, only one throughout all of Scripture, he's the only one to heal someone born blind. No other priest, no other king, no other prophet healed someone who was blind. Jesus was the only one. And not only was he the only one, but throughout the New Testament, the miracle that Jesus is recorded doing more than any other miracle is healing blindness. Do you see how rich this imagery of Jesus as the light is? It's so incredible. Uh, In the beginning of his uh, ministry, Jesus stood up in the synagogue in his hometown and he read these words from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, from the beginning of uh, the people of God coming together, they knew that the Messiah, that Christ, that Jesus would be the light of justice. He would be the light of understanding. He would be the light of freedom for all of mankind. This is who he was bound to be. And here's Jesus saying, I am the light. Jesus says, I am the light. While I am in this world, I am the light of the world. I think that's curious that he says it that way. And I went back and looked at the Greek, and that is sure enough how he says it. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So what does that mean when Jesus returned to heaven? What does that mean when after Jesus uh, died and rose again and then he returned to heaven? Where did the light go? Well, it's really cool because um, we become the lights. We get to reflect his light on the earth. We get to shine on his works in this world. When, uh, when I was in college, um, my friends and I used to go caving all the time. Uh, I went to college in Northeast Tennessee in the Smoky Mountains. So there were caves everywhere. And uh, there were a couple we could walk to from campus. And so we walked to this one. It was called the Saltpeter Mine. It was an old mine. And um, we went, and if there's any kids in here, don't go in caves without parents. Um, but we went into this cave, and we did the same thing we always did, right? We didn't even have phones back then, but we took, uh, so we had flashlights or headlamps or glow sticks. We got in there, and we would always turn our lights off. When you got into around the first corner and you were in utter darkness, we'd turn all the lights off. And it's kind of like this eerie feeling, right, of like discomfort, and you don't really know what's going on. There were always bats in there and weird little animals, and you never knew if there was a bear in there or what was going on. It was just, it was just discomforting in, in all these different ways. You were kind of squeamish. And you kept waiting for your eyes to adjust to where you could see. You just kept waiting for it. Like, it's going to come. It's going to happen. I just, just by me sitting here, I'll be able to see better. But it never did. Because in a cave, if you've ever been in a cave, it is utter darkness, sheer darkness. It's not like a dark and gloomy night. It's not like fog. It's like you're, you can put your fingers right here and not see them. It's, it's amazing how dark it is. So one time, me and my friend Deke are in this cave. I'm going to tell you the story. We're in this cave, and uh, we turned off our lights. And usually, we would just all sit there. But my friend Deke's a little crazy, and he decided he was going to take off running down this hallway. We'd never been in this cave before, so we don't even know what's at the end of the Like, rocks everywhere, you know? So he's just running down the hall. And then, like, a couple seconds later, he flipped his light on. And we could see his light at the end of the, at the, end of the tunnel, 
And uh, we all like rushed down there to see if he's okay because he like kind of yelped. So we rushed down there to see if he's okay. And he's standing at the edge of this chasm, like this huge, giant hole. And we all like shine our lights down in the hole and you can't even see the bottom. So Deke like almost died. But anyways, um, I remember when the light came on because I was uncomfortable already. Then I hear Deke running, like yelling like a banshee through the middle of the, and then we hear him stop and yelp. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening. So the light comes on and it's a relief. And I'm like, whew, I can see Deke. He's alive. We're okay. Light is a relief. Light um, is a good thing. It, it, it helps my little kids have a nightlight in their room at night because darkness is scary. Jesus wants us to be the light in our neighborhood. He wants us to bring not only understanding, but he wants us to bring the truth. He wants us to guide people to new life. He wants to use you and I to do that. Um, we were meant to carry this little light of mine into the dark places to shine on the redemptive works that God is already doing in our lives and around us in our world. One last story. Moses um, is a character many people have heard about. Moses meets with God again on Mount Sinai later in the journey in the book of Exodus. And as he's meeting with Mount Sinai, this is where he gets the Ten Commandments, okay? So he's up there for a time with God. And Moses comes down off the mountain. He's been with God, right? I mean, he is, he is full of... Um, you know, good stuff. He's full of uh, light. And he, while he was up there, though, the people, the Israelites, have like turned, they've gone haywire, right? Like they're just like partying. They're going nuts down there. They have totally abandoned God and they're living in crazy ways down at the bottom of the hill. So Moses comes down the mountain and there's this stark contrast of the light that is in Moses and the darkness that is in the people. So much so that it actually records in the Bible that Moses glowed. He had so much light in him from being in the presence of God that he literally glowed to the point where the people went and they made a veil for him. And they made him wear a sheet over his head because he was so radiant with the love of God. That's how we're supposed to be. In your neighborhood, you're supposed to be such a bright light that people look at you and they have to ask questions. They wonder, who is this guy? What's going on with these people? Why are, they, why are they acting like this? Why are they loving people in this way? What is going on with these people? Our light should be so bright that people have to take note of it. It says, uh, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, you, my followers, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then put a bowl over it. Instead, they put it on a stand so that it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Since the day that Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden for sinning, God has been at work redeeming earth. He's been at work restoring his creation. He's been at work making what is dark light. God has been at work doing that since the day Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. There's evidence all around us if we'll just open our eyes and see it. One of my favorite authors, Michael Frost, um, he says that Christians as Lamanites are to alert people to the universal reign of God through Christ in the here and now. God is doing work all around us. It's our job to draw attention to it. It's our job when we find those things, those ways that God is redeeming the earth and creation around us, that we name Jesus in those moments and that we give him the credit and that he gets the glory for those moments. But it's our job to point them out. 
God's already at work. He's already doing these things. Uh, Michael Frost, in his book, he, he, recomm- he talks about four different ways that you can uh, illuminate God's redemptive works here on earth. And they're really, really helpful. So if you want to write them down or you want to text me later or something, I can send them to you. The first is reconciliation and redemption. These are things that God's people do. We reconcile with people when it doesn't make sense. Um, We offer redemption to people. Just over a year ago, June 17, 2015, uh, a white man went to a historically black church and sat down in the midst of a Bible study. And towards the middle of the Bible study, he stood up and he shot and killed nine of the people sitting there with him. Some of you guys remember this event. It was terrible. It was tragic. It was heartbreaking. It was so many things, but nothing good. And then days later, at the courthouse, as the man was sitting there on trial, family after family, all nine, stood up and they offered forgiveness to this man. This is days later. The grandchildren, the nieces and nephews, the husbands, the wives stood up there and they offered forgiveness to this man who had just days earlier murdered in cold blood their family members. That is reconciliation. That is forgiveness. If Jesus is not named in that moment, who will get credit for it, right? Jesus, that's, these people were, they claimed Jesus in that moment. They named Jesus in that redemption. And that's beautiful. God is at work around us. We just have to name him in it and shine the light on it. Reconciliation and redemption. The second is justice. Um, there's a group of attorneys here at our church who formed this network called CLAIM. And CLAIM uh, meets twice a month. Uh, it's a bunch of attorneys who have come together so that now when we encounter people in our community who are broken or who are hurting or who need representation, we can take them to this place, to these attorneys, to CLAIM, and they can get justice and they can be um, advocated for Justice is another area that we can point out God's um, redemptive works. The third is beauty. You just look around. I mean, the fall, the fall leaves are beginning to fall, the, the crisp, cool air, the change of the seasons. There's so many things that we can point to that God is already doing. And then you look at all the works that God's creation, which is men and women, are what we're doing, right? Look at, we, we live near some of the best art galleries in the world, people. Like, just go there with people and point out that Jesus is here, that God is at work redeeming, right? Um, God is redeeming so many different things and he's bringing um, so much beauty to our lives. My, my favorite example, I talk a lot about our street because we spend a lot of time on it. Our street out front of our house, um, it, there's a lot of kids who live on our street and my wife and I uh, have been very intentional about living in our front yard and my wife has recently named this group of kids who play in our front yard uh, the Lorraine Gang because we live on Lorraine Avenue. And so the Lorraine gang is always in our front yard. And I mean always, like come over someday and just surprise us. If you stay for an hour or two, you'll see them in our front yard. And they're all of these kids from all around the world, speaking different languages, different ages, and then all of the parents all out in our front yard, just talking to each other, being around each other. In this world that we live in today, in our nation that we live in today, look on the news. Are people of different color and different languages and different ages, are they hanging out together? Are they laughing and having a good time, carrying on, taking pictures, playing games, that's not happening. And so it's our job to point out Jesus in those moments and God's restorative work. It's, it's so important that we do that. The last one, the fourth one is wholeness. Um, 
God has at work re- redeeming people and making them whole again, physically healing people. God still is in the work of physically healing people. He's also in the work of healing people emotionally. Um, God wants to come into your life and take the emotional wreck that you are, because all of us are somewhere. He wants to take that and he wants to heal it and he wants to offer newness of life and wholeness of life. Guys, God is at work. Jesus is the light. I am the light of the world. It's such a beautiful illustration. I want you guys to go this week and remember that. And if you are a Christ follower, may you take this opportunity, the opportunities he gives us every week to shine his light on the redemptive works that he's already doing. Let's pray. God, thank you.